The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. You know the moments that change everything? Sometimes we think about these moments as negative, moments where we've lost control, we've hit rock bottom, or something was so painful that we needed to drastically change our life. These moments, of course, can be really powerful and they can be catalysts. And the thing is that our relationship changes, right? It changes with them as they end up further and further back in the rearview mirror of our lives. My guest today is Dan Harris, who many of you probably know. Dan is sort of an uber-anxious achiever and his work has been so helpful for me. He's an author and he's host of the 10% Happier podcast. He's an advocate for meditation. And he got here because of where he was, best summarized as a fairly well-known incident from his days as a reporter and anchor on ABC News, where in 2004, he suffered an on-air panic attack. That event changed his life, and it put him on the path of entrepreneurship and being a steward of mental health practices like mindfulness meditation. Dan wrote a book about his journey, 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voices in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Really Works, a true story. And he's celebrating the 10th anniversary of that book with an updated version. I spoke with him about his career trajectory, how his views have changed, and where he sees mental health and work in today's world. I have to tell you that two things struck me as I was rereading it, and I, I'd love your reflections. The first one was on your relationship with Peter Jennings mm. and all the coverage since and all the many people who call me up and say, my boss is toxic. They're making me so anxious. Help. What do I do? Did you reflect as you as you revised the book on, on what that relationship with your boss, legendary news anchor Peter Jennings was and, and whether it was psychologically healthy or if it would have been different today? I've thought about this a lot. Um, I think about it. I don't talk about Peter in my next book. I'm I'm working on, I'm six years into writing my next memoir. And a lot of it is about uh, failures in my own interpersonal style, including leadership style. And I see a lot of myself in Peter's manner. I, you know, I think I picked up a lot of bad habits, not only from Peter, but also the, the many of the grownups in my life when I was starting out in the news business. Mm. And I, I, you know, it's, it's fashionable for people of my age to complain about millennials and Gen Zers. Um, and for sure, I've, I have indulged in some of that, but I've really come around to the fact that in the main, the changes that are happening in the workplace, the increased sensitivity, to people's bandwidth, to burnout, to making sure that there's psychological safety, meaning that even the the most junior person feels comfortable speaking up. 
None of that was none of that was was an emphasis in my yeah, early days. Not a lot of psychological safety, I would assume, in no. the early in the ABC newsroom in the in the no. early aughts. No. Tell us a little bit about about that environment and about T- Peter Jennings for people who haven't just read the book. So so he he was the anchor of World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. He was an American icon although actually he's Canadian, um, and he was panoramically famous. I mean, walking down the street with him in New York City, a place that is famously, you know, immune to the charms of celebrities, it was like every head would turn. <laughs> uh, it He was so well-known. I mean, at the top of uh, the influence of network news, the shows were each show on NBC, CBS, and ABC was reaching upwards of 30 million homes a night. Uh, Now, I think the number one show is seven or eight million a night. So it's, but so Peter was super, super famous. And it was at a time when there weren't a lot of guardrails when it came to um, being tough on the furniture was the phrase that often got used. (laughs) I've never heard that. (laughs) Yeah. And so Peter could be tough on the furniture. You know, he was, he was, uh, short-tempered and uh, expected excellence and a complicated man who I think was married four times. And, um, and you know, he's just a very complicated guy who had been, you know, poorly treated when he was young. And so this is just kind of the way things were done. I want to be clear. He had a lot of amazing aspects of his personality. He was a fantastic mentor to me and gave me opportunities that I never thought I would get or let alone that I deserved. And so I loved the man. And one of the few times I've wept as a grown-up was when he died. So I had deeply mixed feelings about him. But I think a lot about taking some of the good parts of his personality, the the high standards, the willingness to speak truth to people who have a lot of power, um, the clarity of vision, the skepticism. I think a lot about retaining that while not being an intimidating leader. And I don't, I do not, <laughs> I do not succeed all the time, but it's definitely a priority. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the, one of the things that I love most about the book are, the, are these, are these two quotes. Um, the first is that what your father would tell you, your Jewish mother, your father, is that the price of security is insecurity. Um, <laughs> and, um, and that was also the work that was the the sort of ethos I grew up with, but the workplace I grew up with also. Whereas if you if you rested for a second, someone would come eat your lunch, or you thought they would, so you you could not you could not stop to look behind your shoulder, right? It was always and and you talk about sort of your own belief in, in hypervigilance and how it you felt like it powered your success. I just was wondering if you could reflect on why you chose the career you chose and how those qualities maybe even set you up for for where you got to in that career, which was a pretty high height. Well, I chose TV news because I wanted something glamorous, although it turns out I had it mixed up in my mind with um, the movies. (laughs) TV news is not actually that glamorous at all. There are some aspects of it when you get to the, you know, the peak that are a little glamorous, but especially starting out, it was not glamorous at all. But um, it turned out that I actually loved it anyway. Once I, I was attracted to it for the wrong reasons, but once I got into it, I loved it for the right reasons, which is I'm curious. I love asking people tough questions. I love parachuting into really interesting worlds that I would never otherwise have access to and being able to, you know, sniff around for a bit. So it really suited 
my interests uh, and 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 my strengths. You know, I was not good at I'm not good at math or I don't have a great attention span. So I couldn't have been a lawyer or I don't think very successfully. Certainly business didn't, you know, or science wasn't really um, attractive to me. So this this really was attractive to me. And yeah, I think that that my dad's motto about the price of security is insecurity. That was that really worked for me yeah. uh, until it didn't, yeah. you know, and, and <laughs> um, you know, and I think there are many human traits or capacities that are healthy to a certain point and then not healthy. Th th this can be said of anger, ambition, envy, conflict. Um, there are healthy versions of all of these and destructive versions of all of these. And I just, and the story in the book is that I just very clearly, you know, dive headlong into the destructive end of the ambition spectrum. You didn't include anxiety in the sort of helpful sometimes until it's not category. Yeah, but that was an, that was an oversight because I mean I think uh, that's what the price of ambition, uh, the price of security is is insecurity is all about. So absolutely, some amount of anxiety and stress makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then you know one of the things I talk about in the book is this great expression, kind of like a like a mindfulness bell, a, a great little mantra that you can use to jar yourself out of going down the toilet is a little expression that I got from my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, which is, is this useful? Mm -hmm. So like on the 18th time that you're spinning around the horrible outcomes of some scenario that you're worried about, maybe ask yourself the question, is this useful? Because that can help draw the line between what I call, you know, constructive anguish and <laughs> useless rumination. Exactly. It's funny because one of the other things that I love um, that I learned from your app doing a Joseph Goldstein like mini course was um, before you even ask that, you have to notice. And so his first prompt is when you're in that spin and you're trying to dial in noticing noticing. And and I do that. I, I notice and then I say to myself, is this useful? Mm -hmm. is, is, is the amount of emotional energy, overwork, perfectionism, whatever you're throwing into this task serving you? Nothing can happen without awareness, right? I mean, what do they say in recovery? The first step is admitting it. Mm -hmm. So mindfulness or self-awareness, seeing things clearly, is the sine qua non. It is very hard to address any of your tricky mental habits if you aren't aware that those habits exist in the first place. Yeah. So you've talked and written about this a lot, but I'd love you to take our listeners back to this sort of moment in your career. You were a well-known journalist. You were on television. You were on Good Morning America. And you had you had a couple panic attacks. At that point in your life, did you think about the connection between achievement, anxiety, and work, or were you just inhabiting it and, and sort of stuck in it? I think I did think about it, yeah. I mean, I had my dad's mantra, so for sure. I, I, I thought that any success I achieved was directly correlated to the intensity of my anxiety, for sure. And so I wore it, like many people do, as a badge of honor, you know, this... I'm a stress ball and anything I'm achieving is thanks to that. But you went to the cover war. You covered many war. Zones. Zones. Thank you. And at some place, it seems like that got mixed up. The ambition, the, the love of the job, the anxiety got mixed up with some PTSD. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if, so you're right that I did spend a lot of time in war zones um, after 9-11. So Afghanistan, Pakistan, Israel, West Bank, Gaza, Iraq, many, 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 many trips to Iraq. Um, mm. I don't know that I got PTSD. Um, I think my problem was more that I liked it too much. And that I, that I don't want that to be misinterpreted. It's not like I get off on violence. I don't. It's just that it was so exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, it was so thrilling and it felt so important that when I came home, everything else seemed flat. And this is not uncommon among actual veterans who, by the way, obviously their level of stress is exponentially higher than anything I have ever dealt with. Mm. But it's not uncommon to hear about veterans who come home and, you know, start speeding a lot um, because they're, they're speeding in their, in their vehicles because they're trying to recreate some of the thrill that, that they had become accustomed to. And so that was... I think that for me was the problem. My ambition uh, in part drove me overseas. And then what happened over there wasn't so much that I was traumatized, although, you know, maybe I was, but really what, what I key in on the most was that I was, I had my finger in electric, in an electric socket and then regular life. And I wasn't even leading a regular life. I was a network news <laughs> man. So I was doing exciting things even when I was home, but quote unquote, regular life just didn't cut it anymore. And that led to a bunch of, you know, stupid behavior in my personal life, including doing cocaine. And that, even though I wasn't high on the air, it that cocaine use was enough to change my brain chemistry to make it more likely, you know, for me to freak out, according to my psychiatrist, on Good Morning America, which was, um, you know, deeply unpleasant. What was the immediate aftermath of of the panic attack like? Did your did your bosses know? Did people know? I remember that Charlie Gibson, who was the main anchor of Good Morning America at the time, bolted out of his chair to run across the room to the desk I was sitting at to check on me. And then, you know, the executive producer, a guy named Ben Sherwood, who went on to be mm -hmm. the head of all of ABC News and then the head of all of ABC, uh, he was in my ear really worried. So people and, you know, the stage managers, everybody was concerned. I knew what had happened. But I lied about it because I thought if I admitted that I had had a panic attack, I would be disqualified from being on the air. So I just said, I don't know what happened. Um, and then the next hour, I had to go back on to do another news update, and I was fine. My mom, who at the time was a practicing physician, she saw it, called me backstage, and she knew exactly what had happened, and she got me a shrink. Was this your first panic attack? I had had panic attacks when I was um, 14 and 15, smoking weed. So I knew I had that capacity and I'd had a few moments on the air where I got very, very nervous and was like hyperventilating a little bit. But I it wasn't like a, it wasn't a full on thing. This was this was the real deal. The real deal. What is the real deal? The real deal is, you know, you I don't know if, any, if you haven't had a panic attack. You have. But if, if anybody listening hasn't had a panic attack, often people think they're having a heart attack because you feel like you're dying. In that, in, in, in one sense, your brain really is computing inappropriately what's happening as a mortal threat. So you're, it's kind of amazing what the body does in a, in a situation of perceived mortal threat. Your heart starts racing and your mouth dries up. That I don't fully understand why you sweat. And I think that's because uh, if you're going to be, if, if you're going to be fighting off a, a, an animal, you want to be slippery. Um <laughs> 
the blood drains mm-hmm. out of your extremities. But then I think that's because if you get cut, you don't want to bleed as much. So the body is doing all this incredible stuff, stuff that happens to be deeply inconvenient if you're trying to anchor the news um, <laughs> or do any public speaking or something like that. But it is kind of incredible what the organism will do to protect itself. And, you know, we so so this fight or flight response that we, you know, we evolved for is brilliant and it's being triggered inappropriately in, in modern life. Right. And this and can be triggered in, in lesser ways, right, by a meeting. I, I, if I had a nickel for everyone who has intense f- physical symptoms before they meet with their toxic boss for their weekly check in. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. or elevators. You know, I have I have really bad claustrophobia. So MRI elevator like that. The there it's it's a bug in the system. <laughs> it tends to go off and we don't need it. I never had problems on planes at all. Until recently, (laughs) the problems with elevators and planes started for me during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I think for two reasons. One, I was just my baseline level of anxiety was really high. And then the other is that I wasn't getting on elevators or planes much. So when I started getting back on elevators and flying again, I had some trouble. And then I had to get I had to like I I, it seemed like a huge setback. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm this Mr. Mental health guy and I'm having panic attacks again. However, I, I went back and got got some what's called exposure therapy, where you I would I would literally ride in an elevator with my shrink to get used to uh, the discomfort, and it it really worked. It really worked, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think there's something really important here, and it, uh, it speaks to uh, you know we, we're in the middle of an anxiety epidemic. I suspect as we've never seen levels of anxiety this high, mm-hmm. particularly among young people. And one of the contributors, according to some of the experts I've spoken to, is a increasing intolerance of discomfort. We we have created a world that is so free of friction where you can <laughs> get a ride by opening an app. You can get food that shows up uh, very quickly. You can find out what's happening in you know, Kuala Lumpur through, uh, you know, an instant access to a webcam, whatever it is like you, there's so little friction in modern life that for some of us, when we feel uncomfortable, it feels deeply wrong and we don't, we're not used to it. And then we spiral. So I think one of the things that really needs to happen is that we need to get more, more intimacy with discomfort and more of a tolerance for it. Okay, so one of the things that is interesting to me about what you mention a lot is that you're fidgety and that you you, you refer to this like you have a short attention span and, and clearly you like you're like a high dopamine seeker, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, a lot of the people that I work with who are really high achieving, who are anxious achievers, we don't actually have a lot of toleration for stillness. We don't like empty space or dead air, and we like to be doing, doing, doing. And I think actually you've you've actually done work on meditation for fidgeters. So I want you to talk about like your experience being fidgety and how that played into your career for good and ill. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a sure I don't have the greatest attention span. And, and I, there were many things about the news business that were, you know, congenial to a brain like mine. I I. I respond well to deadlines and I like the fast paced nature of the of the job that that all really worked for me. 
the it wasn't the best attitude to approach meditation with you know in in meditation there are many flavors of meditation but generally in mindfulness meditation which is the kind of meditation that i generally um, talk about you sit in a chair or on the ground or lie down you just find a comfortable position bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out and if the breath makes you uncomfortable you just pick something else like the feeling of your body sitting or sounds in the environment or um, you can scan different parts of the body. There are lots of options, but you're just basically picking something naturally occurring, something neutral, like your breath or some sensation in the body, and trying to focus on it. And then every time you get distracted, you start again and again and again. And so for fidgety people, this can sound like absolute torture. And it was for me at the beginning, you know, it's just all these thoughts of, you know, I, I want to I get out of here. What am I doing? This is nonsense. And if those still come for me. But there's an enormous relief in noticing that the things you think you can't sit with, restlessness, fear, anger, actually you can sit with. And we tend to take them very personally. Like we, oh, we identify our restlessness as our restlessness or our anger, our depression, or whatever. But there's a, there's a great monk who said that that's a little bit like um, misappropriation of public property. You know, these... These emotions that we think are ours, you know, try to find the you in it. <laughs> try, try, try to lay claim to it. Um, it's a little bit like grasping a cloud. And they're, they're impersonal forces, almost like meteorological events that come together when the conditions are right, like a hurricane. And if you don't identify too strongly with it, if you don't interfere with it, if you don't resist it, it will come and go. And to see that, oh, yeah, this thing that seemed like an inner monolith, this non-negotiable, non unstoppable thing that is all me and mine is actually just an inner squall that will come and go. That's really a relief. So it can be hard at the beginning, but just like exercise is hard. You know, the first time you go running or get on a Peloton or whatever, it, it's that's uncomfortable. And, and yeah. I think it's safe to look at meditation the same way. How should a fidgety skeptic approach meditation? There are many ways to do this. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, really don't want to sit still. Well, fine. There, there's walking meditation. Um, there's meditation that you can do while you're out taking a walk, or there's a formal style of walking meditation, which I would recommend really as a great way to start, especially if you have attention challenges. And, you know, it just involves patching out a stake of, uh, of ground in your house or outside, maybe 10 yards and walking very slowly. It's a long walk to nowhere, walking very slowly to one end of, of the, of the strip and then turning around and walking back and bringing your full attention to the feeling of your body moving. If you're having trouble focusing, you can use the little mental notes like lift, move, place with your feet and legs. And then every time you get distracted, which will happen a million times, you start again and again and again. And people assume when they see how distractible they are that that's failing at meditation. But actually, it's success because the whole game is just to see how wild your mind is so that the wildness of your mind, your anxiety, your hangups, they don't own you as much. And so this is what the practice is doing. There's nothing special about the breath. There's nothing special about the feeling of your body as you're doing walking meditation. The point is to bring you into what's happening right now mm -hmm. out of your spiraling thoughts 
out of the past or the future. Right. Yes, the past or the future, comparing yourself to other people, planning, planning, you know, expletive filled speeches you're going to give to your boss, whatever it is. And 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 then you're so you're, you're trying to tune into something neutral and in, based in your senses. And then your your thoughts are going to come marching back in like the, you know, busting through the wall like the Kool-Aid man all the time. And that's fine, actually, because the benefit is the more that happens and the more you see it, the more you understand like what your mind is doing all the time. And then you can learn how to not be so yanked around by all of your thoughts and emotions. One of the things that you mentioned is is that I think a lot of us, we 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 like the anxiety, we like the rush, we like feeling needed at work, right? And so we couldn't possibly turn off our phone or stop answering emails because people might not need us. How does meditation help you unhook from all of these behaviors that are sort of rewarded in modern mm. workplaces, but are, but sure. are really hard for us? And rewarded in your brain. I mean, you get dopamine when, when you know, um, if, if you like being needed and you make yourself irreplaceable, then you're going to be getting a lot of rewards in your brain. Um, but, you know, I, so, so I, I would say that there's a reason why I call the book 10% happier. It's not like it's going to solve all of your problems. <laughs> these grooves run deep. These, these uh, neural pathways are well established for us. And it takes a while to develop new habits. Uh, to, to, to offer your brain what my friend, Dr. Judd Brewer, who is a neuroscientist and Buddhist, to offer your brain what, what Judd calls the bigger, better offer and the BBO. And so what you'll, what you'll see is that there's this constant desire for momentum, for excitement, for that next phone call, that, that next round of gossip. On some level, there's there's a lot of suffering in that that you're not seeing. There's a lot of edginess. There's a lot of burnout. I'm not saying no amount of it is kosher. I'm just saying that the amount we tend to think we need or want, when you start paying attention, actually, it's there are aspects of it where it's, it would be nice to turn the volume down a little bit. I mean, after all, we're all sleeping. Even those of us who aren't sleeping enough, which is most of us, are sleeping some. And so I would just say that, you know, if if, if you can... If you're turning off your devices long enough to sleep, turning off your device or putting your device in a different room for one to five minutes to meditate shouldn't be too big of a stretch. Yeah. And the bigger, better offer is that you can see that there are levels of equanimity and focus and calm that you may never have experienced before. And I want to be clear, you don't want to go into meditation hoping for some specific experience because that is a guarantee that you will be frustrated. But the point is that you can learn to be awake and aware with whatever is happening. And that is a radically new way to live your life where all of a sudden waiting on a long line at airport could be interesting. <laughs> The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You switch gears in your career, in midlife, It's right? Um, you left the news business. Yeah. And you became an entrepreneur. How did, your, how did your anxious nature adapt to that? And what, what made you finally feel safe to leave the career that you had had for a long time and and make the leap? Well, I screwed this up really badly in many, many ways. So (laughs) all of it because of my anxiety. Um, So the book came out in 2014 and I actually became an entrepreneur very shortly thereafter. And I was still working for ABC News. So I was a guy who was anchoring Nightline, the weekend editions of Good Morning America, traveling the world, doing breaking news and investigative stories. I had the book, which meant that I was also doing speaking gigs. And then I agreed to write another book. And then I started a podcast and I started a venture-backed company that built a meditation app. And right in the middle of this period, I had we had our first and only child too. So I was doing an insane amount, really out of anxiety that, that you know, I wasn't, I didn't feel safe. That Nobody who feels safe needs to do all of that. And so it took me a long time. First thing I did when I realized that I was being a, a dummy was I went part-time at ABC News. And then, so I did that for several years. And then in 2020, so about about two two years ago, a little bit more, I actually left ABC News altogether. I asked them to let me out of my contract in the middle of it, which was a little bit, took took a little maneuvering. Um, and, but they finally did. And yeah, that, that has been great. And, you know, but, but I want to say like, I'm still very, very ambitious and I still have plenty of anxiety. And it's just a, there's a great, I'll, I'll wrap up this long answer by quoting Esther Perel has this quote, and I'm, I'm probably going to mangle it, but the, the heart of it is some things are not problems to be solved. They're dynamics to be managed. <laughs> and so I kind of view my anxiety that way. I mean, there's there's a certain amount of anxiety that is helpful for me and for many other people. And I tend to overdo it sometimes. And so I really have to be on, right on top of it. So I don't envision some Elysian fields where I'm, you know, I've got this figured out. I just think it's going to be a dynamic I manage all the way to the, you know, the lip of the grave. That said, do you have any advice for people who are juggling too much, who who know they need to move on to something else and yet don't feel safe? Um, it's such a universal feeling, I think, especially now when things are so uncertain. Uh, I'm struggling with that, you know, I have so much anxiety around money and scarcity. And um, what has all your all your incredible study taught you about that, about taking the leap? I, I have 
all of that anxiety, just everything you said, money, <laughs> scarcity, um, it, it's definitely there. Uh, but, but there are a, a bunch of things that help. One, mindfulness meditation has helped me a lot in being able to see clearly what's happening so that I'm not driven blindly by, you know, some neurotic anxious program that's in the, you know, some unseen corner of my mind that's feeding me ideas that I'm just acting out without any, you know, awareness. And so just understanding the anxiety that I have this anxiety and that I can get curious about how is it showing up in my body right now and watch it come and go instead of reacting reflexively. That's super helpful. Another thing is self-compassion, which is it really is as simple as talking to yourself or having the attitude vis-a-vis -vis yourself that you would have toward a friend. And it, it's not enough to just wish that into, for most of us, it's not enough for us to just like wish that into being. You have to um, practice it. And, and it really is about learning to counter-program against your own negative and anxious and self-critical inner voice. And sometimes, you know, like there, there's actually a bunch of research that shows that if you can get into the habit of talking to yourself the way you would talk to a good friend when you're freaking out or any other time and uh, put your hand on your heart mm -hmm. <laughs> that and it's very embarrassing and you I wouldn't want anybody to see me to do doing this but it really is helpful because we have this capacity to give advice to mentor and you can direct that capacity toward yourself uh, one thing that's been shown um, in the research, there's a lot of research on this. One thing that's been shown to help is distant self-talk. So using your own name, mm -hmm. because that can create the illusion in your brain slash mind that somebody else is giving you the advice. <laughs> um, I think a lot of basic sort of personal health hygiene mm. can help with anxiety. So making sure you're getting enough sleep, exercise, access to nature, all of those things eating well, but not being overly persnickety about it, because that's that's a, a real pitfall. Um, so th those like basic things are very helpful in reducing anxiety. And then the final thing, which I think is probably the most important, is the power of your social connections. It's interesting, you know, we, we this is a thing I talk about a lot, that um, we live in an era of optimization. People are like, tracking their sleep and counting their calories and trying to achieve ketosis and, you know, getting into really hardcore exercise and whatever. But the number one variable, if you look at the data, is not, it's not any of those things. It's, it's the quality of your relationships. That is what will determine your health, happiness, and success and popularity. Um, and we don't tend to get systematic about that. And, my, in fact, the, the the major thrust of my next book is teaching people how to do that because I, I and meditation is a big part of it, but not the only part. And I, I think this is, and by the way, I, you know, we, we talked earlier about a major contributor to anxiety being a, an intolerance or discomfort. But I think another major contributor to anxiety is that we're living in anti-evolutionary ways. We evolved <laughs> as social animals and we're living in an individualistic, consumer-oriented culture that denies us of what we know we need to thrive. And there are ways to, to work against that, um, just like by being very intentional about um, 
making sure you're getting enough social contact and that it's actually called social hygiene. Being serious about that is, and we talk a lot about it on my show, being serious about that will help you with your anxiety for sure. I think I recall you saying that your personal um, devotion to exploration of the meta practice is a piece of your next book, but also maybe has has guided some of this. And I was wondering if you would tell us about what the meta practice is, why it's helpful for you, and you could even share a couple lines. Yeah, um, uh, it's very helpful for me, and it's uh, yeah. The the next book is about love. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about here, love broadly defined. And it's an omnidirectional inner capacity, meaning that self-love is part of it. And I think this is the life skill par excellence. <laughs> this is, if you're interested in longevity, if you're interested in success, if you're interested in mental health, all the data point in this direction. And yet the culture is not pointing us in this direction. And so no. what's going on there? The Buddha 2,600 years ago came up with a practice that we often translate as loving kindness. The ancient word is metta, M-E-T-T-A. And he designed this practice as an antidote to what? Fear, anxiety. The story is that he, a lot of the monks were out living in the middle of the forest, a lot of wild animals out there. So it was terrifying, lots of crazy noises. You don't know what's happening. And so um, he developed this practice that you know, this has been shown um, by modern scientists to to really help with lots of lots of things. Uh, so the Buddha was uh, a genius and it, it's an annoying practice. I'm not going to lie to you, um, <laughs> at least for me at first. You basically envision a series of beings. So usually start with an easy person, could be like a kid or your pet. And then you repeat four phrases, maybe happy, maybe safe, maybe healthy, healthy, may you live with ease. And then you move from the easy person to yourself and then to a mentor and then a neutral person, somebody you see often but overlook, then a difficult person. I often say best not to start with like Pol Pot or something like that. Just go go to a mildly annoying person and then all beings everywhere. Um, and so you're just generating either a felt sense of these people or a visual image and repeating the phrases. And it's actually quite a bit of work. It requires a lot of bandwidth, but it has been shown through modern science to, ha to have physiological, psychological, and even behavioral benefits. Um, little kids, preschoolers who are taught this practice become more likely to give their stickers away to kids they don't like. <laughs> and so I just think this is, it's helpful for you in so many ways to just turn the volume down on your anxiety, turn the warmth on in your mind so that your inner weather is balmier, which will lead to improved relationships with the people in your life, which will in turn reduce your anxiety, which will in turn improve your relationships and then reduce your anxiety even further. I call this the cheesy upward spiral. It's not like I'm on an unbroken circular, you know, route uh, to heaven, I go down the opposite, the toilet vortex all the time. Um, so it's, you know, the spirals are perennially available to me. But just to know that this this alternative is there is immensely powerful. I have to tell you that um, I, I went through a really difficult um, I sold my business of many years, and it was a difficult acquisition. And at the lowest point of our relationship, 
um, I, I forced myself to see the person who I was having so much difficulty in my metta practice and, I'll, and offer her loving kindness, um, inspired by your app and Sharon Salzberg's work. And, um, and it was the only time we connected. I texted her and I said, this is what I'm doing. And I could tell that her gratitude for it was so real. It was, it was like in our tortured two-year relationship, it was the only time I felt like, because she, she, she also meditated, um, that she heard me. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't, that may not work with everybody. And you don't have to tell them. Right, you don't have to tell them. You know, that, that old expression, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to mangle this too, but something like desire for revenge is like taking poison and hoping the other person dies. Um, and so the, the, this rage, and I feel it too, but believe me, I've got plenty of conflict in my life. Um, well, not that much, but I, I certainly have it. Um, and I can, uh, you know, it, anger is not hard for me to access, but it's not very helpful for me. Um, it's very easy for me to tip over into the destructive, unhealthy kind of anger. And it, it just went, if you can, the Dalai Lama talks about this a lot in a very compelling ways. And this is a guy who's had a lot of conflict in his life with a, a a, a little country you might have heard of called China. And um, he talks about how when, if you can train yourself to approach all of these things from an altruistic standpoint, the wanting of the best for everyone, instead of rage and hatred and anger, it doesn't mean you're going to be a doormat. Um, it doesn't mean you're not firm. But if you can keep yourself out of toxic rage, then you're able to access the full brilliance of the human brain and mind because there's a coiling, a stress, uh, a constriction to anger that, that really, that limits your creativity and meta practice has been shown to literally improve people's peripheral vision. Wow. Um, so it's a, it's a new way to think about the world. Well, it's actually an old way. But new for most of us. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, I'm going to end the interview coming full circle to where we started with um, thinking about your original bosses in a different age. I want you to answer the question that I get from my readers and listeners all the time, which is my toxic boss is making me so anxious. I'm not sure I can keep going to work. What should I do? Yeah, well, this this is kind of rhymes with the answer you asked the the question you asked me earlier that I didn't fully answer. I now realize, like, well, what do you do if you know you need to make a change? You're overburdened and you're you're feeling unsafe. I think the thing I would say to both of those, like, what do you do if you're overburdened, burned out, and you know you need to make a change, but you're worried about doing it? And I've got a toxic boss. What do I do about that? I think the first thing I would say to both of those is that sucks. That's really hard. And I think you should give yourself permission to see clearly that this is a tough position. Mm -hmm. There's no need to like sugarcoat it or be overly stoic about it. I mean, this is, that is hard. Um, and every situation is unique. So it's hard for me to give universalized advice, you know, everything kind of depends on your economic situation, the number of alternative well, assuming you want to keep you your job that's 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 where that's where i think your advice is helpful because because i have a toxic boss i'm nauseous i have migraines help it doesn't mean i'm going to quit tomorrow right it means i need a way to work with this yes yes um well there are a bunch of communication skills so if you don't want to quit 
and or you can't quit, which is a real a reality for a lot of people. There's no silver bullet, but there are a bunch of communication skills that can be really helpful. Uh, I'll recommend um, a book. The, the authors are Dan Clerman and Mudita Nisker. They're a married couple. I think it's called Let's Talk. Um, anyway, I've worked with them for five years, and they've really helped me with my interpersonal communication style. And so one trick that really works to disarm people, and there are many, uh, but this is the one that's coming to mind. It's called reflective listening. You've probably talked about it before. You, I'm sure you know what it is, but for anybody listening, if you're new to this, it's um, when somebody says something to you, no matter how obnoxious it is, instead of reacting to it, you repeat back the essence of what you've heard in your own words. So it doesn't, you, you don't have to take the bait on what the person's saying. You just re repeat it back. Oh, so you're saying X and Y. That is so deeply and primordially pleasing to people that it tends to be a really disarming. And if they correct you, if they amend their statement, then you reflect the correction and you reflect them into submission. <laughs> and then once they feel fully heard, because that's usually what's going on here, um, then you can make your point. And I'm not saying this is gonna be a silver bullet. This is a thing to try. And then I also say, you know, I also believe that over time, there are scenarios that might reveal themselves to be intolerable. And so starting to think about how you can extricate yourself might be it might be something you really have to look at. Is there a meditation on your app or that you're aware of that someone who's listening and thinking this is me and I, I just I don't know how to get out of my anger into a thinking place? Is there a meditation that would help? I just think this meta practice is useful for this yeah. um, for a number of reasons. I mean, because <laughs> my favorite meditation teacher is a guy named Joseph Goldstein. We're very close. And he has this little expression. If it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> so life is always going to be challenging. I mean, you know, the, you, you <laughs> I'm making too many references here, but I was just reading this great novel, The Bee Sting. And um, at some point in the novel, the... The, the one of the characters makes a reference to how they, they always thought life was going to be an, an unbroken upwards trajectory, upward trajectory, like like you always get, you know, iPhone upgrades. <laughs> but that, that is not how life works. It's up and down. It's hard. And so right now your problem is a toxic boss, but there's always going to be a problem. Right. Um, and so loving kindness is very helpful because it can help you over time. It's not going to be a miracle cure, but over time, it can help you take it easier on yourself to develop your capacity for warmth for other people, to develop your gratitude for your capacity for gratitude for other people, and to maybe tune into the, even the positive aspects of your difficult person and to see that everybody's acting out their stuff. That's another Josephism. Like we're all, I don't know if I want to say doing our best because some people really don't appear to be doing their best, but we're all just acting out our conditioning, the stuff that happened to us when we were children, the, the trauma we inherited from our ancestors. And I get, this is not to excuse or condone the, the behavior you're dealing with. It doesn't mean you need to invite them over for dinner. But if you can just start to see it, take it less personally, see that it's not really about you, that this right now may be your cross to bear, but there are ways to do it that can be less horrible for you. Um, Dan Harris, thank you so much. Total pleasure. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. 
Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening. 